0: Uh, we have just come through a bruising election and a singularly partisan period of our history. And I think, if I can have my first two slides, uh, they will be in honor of the person I would put my uh, voice down as saying is the most significant artist of his generation. That's Felix Gonzalez-Torres. If we can have the first slide, do I do I, do I just by myself? Ah, such power! Uh, now, if we can have the if we can have the uh, lights come down a little bit. Uh, Anyway, we have come through this election, uh, and as usual, it has been followed after everybody called each other all the names they could possibly think of and invented a few uh, by the call for bipartisan action, accompanied by the usual signs of hardening positions and factionalism, that is to say hardening positions within both sides and factionalism internally, which makes me think that this is a particularly good time to talk about pluralism and its mechanisms uh, and perhaps some of its costs, but also many of its benefits. In politics, polarization uh, becomes a a necessary part of activity for some people. But it also becomes possible simply because it it allows one to project one's own internal divisions onto somebody else. The things that may be wrong with you turn out to be wrong with somebody else, uh, the other side, and you conquer your own uh, disagreements with yourself by conquering them. the polarization of art is also a factor in our history. In the early phases of modernism, uh, which were rife with absolutisms, we had isms to begin with and manifestos beyond that. Um, I'm just going to show you. This is uh, two Felix Gonzalez-Torres pieces. Uh, the, all of his pieces were untitled, uh, but this was called Untitled, the Reagan Years. Uh, and that was, I forget what it's uncalled, called, untitled, but it has some kind of political uh, uh, connotation because it's actually the red, white, and blue, and they're candies you can eat. This is just to, uh, again, on this sort of American theme um, because of the season, um, two versions of uh, the idea uh, proposed by the man who made the one on the far side, Jasper Johns, uh, that if one makes images of things he said the mind already knows, it's amazing what comes up in fact, how many things we do not know about them, how many extra resonances and different dimensions that they actually acquire. So famously uh, Jasper made this painting uh, in the mid to late 50s, he made a group of them, uh, and they were at that time deemed absolutely and totally subversive, uh, such that when uh, Alfred Barr wanted to acquire one for the Museum of Modern Art, he had to persuade Philip Johnson to buy it for him and sit on it, keep it on ice, until in the recent aftermath of the McCarthy era, it would be possible to show such a painting as not being an outrageous slap in the face uh, at the waving flag because of course this one doesn't wave a bit. Uh, It is absolutely rigid, and it is undergirded also by newspapers so that you have this wonderful sort of uh, dense sediment of the daily life of uh, the Republic, uh, overlaid by this very fleshy version of the American flag. Anyway, that's what Jasper did many years ago. This is one of my favorite slides of recent years, something I tried and failed to acquire for the modern, a piece by Kim Dingle, which uh, is based on a series of maps of the United States made by kids in Las Vegas High School, where she taught. Um, this is what the mind already knows, but sort of doesn't know the same way ever uh, in any cases. Uh, this, is, this is what America means to me. Um, I'm not sure that's the Frank Sinatra song, but it's something like that. Anyway, little bits of patriotism. Um, this, by the way, a little bit more. Uh, these are other parts of America. These are other great painters who dealt with the vicissitudes, and particularly with the internal contradictions of Americans. Uh, Leon Golub uh, on the far side, and on the near side, uh, uh, Philip Guston. Artists of roughly the same generation, artists of very different ways of approaching the same problems, which is an America at war with itself, or at war with others, and therefore conflicted about its own relationships to itself. Uh, And famously, Gustin, of course, made this happen by assuming the guise of the Ku Klux Klansman, when in fact he was anything but. Um, and imagining what it would be like to to roam the horizon uh, in a very difficult time the next few years uh, as a Ku Klux Klansman, Leon Galab, who reflected on the American use of surrogates in the wars that they fought overseas. And just to end this little political digression, but just to say that political art doesn't necessarily come with a message. It comes only, again, with the contradictions built into it. On the near side, a piece not at all political, but it can show you how different things look in different contexts. This is Mauricio Catalan, and I don't have the title with me, but it's something about wanting to be loved. Um, (laughs) And on the far side, uh, a piece, a leftover of the Cold War called Them and Us. Now, I will use them and us as the uh, point to turn on my heel slightly and come back to the larger themes. The idea of them and us is powerful in art history, as I say, in particular moments where people write manifestos declaring what art ought to be from their point of view. Uh, And they also tend to ally these ought-to-bes with a series of other uh, justifications that buttress the ought-to-be, usually philosophical, often political. And much of the problem of dealing with modern art, modernism, in all of its different forms, is that many of these ought to be conflict. They conflict rather dramatically with one another. In fact, sometimes they actively are at war with one another. Uh, it is impossible uh, to entertain the idea that all of these ought to be, ought to have been. Uh, and without understanding that basically you will therefore sacrifice one or the other to one or the other in order to have your way with art, with history, etc., etc., etc. One of the things I think of sometimes is the faculty meeting at the Soviet Academy in Vitebsk, where Kandinsky, Chagall, and Malevich would have argued about what ought to be. On the other hand, we are very grateful that we have the work of all of them to hang in our museums and that the arguments can take place in a sense in front of us, and in other cases, there are no arguments at all, they're simply amazing works of art. So the them and us dichotomy is something that uh, is built into the way modernism has been structured, but it is also the problem that one must overcome in order to actually deal with the varieties of art which is not to blame it on the artist, because after all, in situations where you have an extremely conservative established idea of what art is, you have to use a battering ram to get through. In other cases where there are a dozen peoples with battering rams, you better have the biggest battering ram to get through. So that the idea of isms is about a natural conflict of ideas which takes place, but what matters is those conflict ideas don't necessarily win or lose as to produce embodiments of what they might represent, what their complexities of understanding of the world are that are there for us to think about long after uh, the battle among them is over, long after the circumstances that produced that battle has morphed into some other circumstance. Now, the place where isms, uh, tend to fight most is where there's the most power. Uh, In the 19th century, that was France, and Paris, as Walter Benjamin famously declared, it was the capital of the 19th century. In the mid-20th century, it was the United States, and Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg, and a host of other people declared that what happened in New York uh, was what mattered most. Uh, And Greenberg, in particular, created an idea that he called the mainstream, which was a way of describing how it was that the greatness of the consolidated European traditions which as we know were not consolidated. The greatness of the consolidated European traditions flowed naturally, and we know nothing about art is natural since everything about it is by definition artificial, um, how they naturally flowed through New York to create a new art world. Now, if you look outside of John Baldessari's exhibition, which is a wonderful thing, I just got a little taste of it coming in, but just remember that John is one of those artists who did not make a million dollars at his first auction. Um, who probably didn't have a first auction until he was in his 50s, um, who has worked on the West Coast for a long time. He is, by the way, also one of those artists who disproves the notion that those who do do and those who can't teach, since he is one of the great teachers and artists that we have, and incidentally has gone back to teaching well past the point where there is any economic necessity for it. I would say that another artist, which is well represented in this collection way, Tebow, is another example of this, uh, and altogether the role of teaching artists in California is more akin to that of teaching artists in Germany, like Boyce and others, than it is in New York, which is to tell you a little bit about how different art worlds actually are and how little mainstream there is that really actually describes them all. But in any case, let me get the um, next slide. In any case, uh, the idea of the mainstream conveniently covered up all the ways in which the conflicts of art in the early phases were manifest, Uh, all the ways in which people actually didn't choose either or, they did and and. And they did the and and not only within groups but within themselves such that the first great modernist by most accounts, Picasso, was contradicting himself within about seven years of having invented Cubism, and contradicts himself uh, avidly, if you will, almost entirely, in the next 10. 1914 is the date of the first neoclassical picture that he made, and Demoiselle d'Avignon is, what, 1907. Uh, This is, of course, women by the the source, or by the well. uh, Both belong to to the Museum of Modern Art. And to go to the Museum of Modern Art and not read the disturbances in the field that these two pictures represent, and not read the arguments with himself Norman Mailer did advertisements for himself, Picasso did arguments with himself. Um, In any case, uh, not to read the arguments himself is to miss actually the substance of modern art. This is one example. Here's another. Two paintings by Francis Picabia who, uh, in a funny kind of way, has become one of the most influential artists artists of the last two decades, uh, although the most unexpected influential artist. It was commonly said that if indeed Picasso was the great painter of the first half of the 20th century, then Duchamp was the great artist of the 20th century because he undid virtually everything that Picasso represented. Uh, Picabia has had some great last innings. Uh, And as a fellow traveler uh, in early data with um, Duchamp, it's interesting that what he did was he devoted those last innings, and all of his innings mostly, to painting. He took the same perversities that Duchamp had, but he applied them to the problem of making interesting paintings which more or less belied their own value. Uh, He was deeply cynical which is a reminder that great artists can be cynical, and that great art sometimes is cynical, and that when we use cynical in the least serious use of that word, that is to say, kind of cheap uh, scorn, uh, rather than as a critical device for calling into question uh, not only somebody else's pieties, but our own, then you can understand the ways in which Picabia is, in a time where there have been altogether too many pieties, a remarkably tempting figure for a lot of young artists. Uh, For those of you who may not know this, uh, take one example. Uh, Philip Pearlstein, the American realist painter known for painting very sober nudes under very unforgiving light, is often thought by conservatives to be representative of a kind of solid, direct, observational painting of the kind that we, we meaning they, respect. Philip Pearlstein actually was a graduate student at the Institute of Fine Arts, where I have taught uh, until recently. Actually, I still teach there. Uh, And while at the Institute of Fine Arts, he wrote a dissertation, or a master's paper actually, on Picabia, and on particularly the perversities of Picabia. And if you look at Philip's recent paintings, you will find all kinds of Picabia-esque anomalies and contradictions of imagery creeping into what people thought were safe realist paintings, and that other people thought were boring realist paintings. So in any case, he's a good example. Just parallel on that, since I'm being a little digressive all across the board, uh, the other great graduate student of the Institute of Fine Arts who spent not uh, a few years, as Philip did, but six, uh, was uh, Ad Reinhardt, And he, too, was a wonderful satirist. And inasmuch as he made some of the most sublime abstract paintings any painter has made in this country, he made some of the most uh, scathing political uh, and art political cartoons that anybody has ever done either. So the spirit of... uh, I don't know what you would call it is, a a kind of a a spoiler spirit or a, a, a trickster spirit resides even in the most sober-seeming or most uh, somber-seeming artists. Uh, And, of course, then, therefore, the relative uh, tricksterism of somebody like Picabia is relative only. That it should be, for example, a model of not only uh, Sigmar Polka, in whom one can see it rather obviously, but also in Gerhard Richter, who one cannot, is an indication exactly of how those little communities of uh, strangeness attract. This is another version of the same art historical problem. On the far side, Theo van Doesburg, and on the near side, Baltus. Um, How can you keep both of these artists in your mind at the same time? But the problem is that the images are very powerful, and once seen, one can't get them out of their mind, so they come to coexist de facto, even though logic or conviction may wish one or the other would go away. Or these. Uh, These are two images that represent, again, a kind of basic understanding of positive values in American art. Uh, As many people may not know, but is true, the first painting that the Museum of Modern Art ever purchased was this Edward Hopper that's right next to me. So it did not start with Picasso and Matisse, it started with an American painter Hopper. On the far side you have Walker Evans and there is, if you read his biography, nobody stranger than Walker Evans. But he made these wonderfully empathetic pictures of a kind of straightforward American moment of the Depression era. But then I've been cheating because, of course, what I'm showing you is actually not Walker Evans. It's Sherry Levine's copy of Walker Evans. And so all the authenticities in the photograph, at least conceptually, should have dissolved before your very eyes. Um, Or this. This is the mainstream. And I have gotten Greenberg on stage, so let's give him his moment. The idea of mainstream was that, as I said, that the great traditions uh, would, in a continuous flow, uh, give supremacy to American art henceforth, and so basically uh, you have all of the strands of uh, early modern art: Picasso, Surrealism, Matisse etc. 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 flowing into Jackson Pollock and once you have Jackson Pollock you have that great American tradition and all it needs now is to issue from its original statement uh, and it would therefore do the work of continuity all by itself. Um, It is of course, uh, again, uh, one of the problems of this is that the source for for, um, Jackson Pollock was not primarily Matisse and Picasso and others, although Picasso did matter. It was primarily painters that uh, Greenberg himself loathed and many people had turned their back and like Orozco and Siqueiros. Uh, So when you look at this picture and you see the grand continuity with Europe, you should certainly make at least uh, uh, allowances for a huge detour through Mexico City. Um, Leftist politics um, and a whole lot of other things like Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, And in any case, what Pollock represents is not the the, the sumum of a certain kind of natural evolution of, of modernism, but rather one of those precise examples where somebody who misunderstood the wrong people came up with the right art. Um, And when I say misunderstood the wrong people, I don't think Orozco and Siqueiros were the wrong people, but I do think he misunderstood them, um, and I do think he came up with the right art. Um, on the far side, a local uh, um, uh, artist of significance and an international one as well, obviously Morris Lewis. Uh, how the drip becomes the stain and so on is the histories that are written into an American museum uh, landscape as far as you can see, although those of our generations are bitterly trying to enrich that writing without uh, obliterating it. Here are two examples, for example, of what somebody has done with Pollock and with stain painting. On the far side, Sigmar Polka, in the spirit, if you will, of um, Picabia, uh, and on the near side, uh, Tip Dunham. Uh, in this, in this case, you have uh, relief elements, which are in fact the, the sort of the, uh, styrofoam balls you find at fun fairs. Now, these are both homages to that kind of art and send-ups of them at the same time, which is a reminder that if you have, on the one hand, truly good cynical art, you also can have some truly good insincere art that isn't cynical. And I will use as my authority on this uh, Stravinsky, who said uh, on, in his lectures at Harvard, he said, you know, most art is sincere and bad, but there is good insincere art that is sincerely good, or something on that order. Um, here again, The idea that one kind of art cancels another kind of art logically simply doesn't hold. Uh, There's a marvelous essay by Leo Steinberg called The Plight of the Public in Contemporary Art in which he describes the ways in which his growing affection for uh, Jasper Johns in the late 1950s threatened his deep devotion to abstract expressionism. How Johns' way of reframing the gesture, how Johns' way of evacuating the individual artist as protagonist of the picture, how Johns' Duchampian tendencies altogether uh, and his amazing kind of uh, reserve as an artist uh, was exactly the undoing of a devotion to the idea of an authentic, purgative, uh, direct statement, an expressionist statement. But the truth of the matter is, as I say, you don't lose your love entirely. Uh, You may doubt some of the bases for it, but you retain the things that you were uh, in love with in other forms, such that uh, Roy Lichtenstein's version of the Johnsian gambit, which is to paint an utterly cold, predictable, graphic version of the free stroke, didn't make it impossible for de Kooning, 20 years later, to make some very good, very free strokes. Or this, just to give you some other possibilities. On the near side, colors for a large wall of Jasper Johns. On the far side, a heavily Duchamp-influenced Sherry Levine. She makes her second appearance. And this is a suite of Kellyisms. Now, I, again, love Kelly's work. I have loved it for a long time, there was a time when I had to love it almost secretly. um, Because uh, Kelly was understood to be an important American artist, but a little too French around the edges. Um, Whereas Frank Stella and other American artists who were New York defined entirely were the ones that were making history and indeed uh, the Museum of Modern Art devoted two full exhibitions to uh, the work of uh, Frank Stella. Uh, who, by the way, again, if you look at the present situation and lament the fact that artists are too famous too young, uh, remember that uh, Johns was having his first major exhibition when he was in his early 30s, I think actually the age of 30, and that Frank had his first show when he was just graduated as an undergraduate from Princeton University. He was in the Museum of Modern Art collection and exhibition space. So there are fast starts and slow starts, and if Baldessari represents a glorious slow start, Um, Frank and others uh, represent glorious fast starts. Uh, Ellsworth is sort of in the middle. But in any case, uh, if I put Ellsworth up here, it is only to say that his work holds up even when it is lampooned, even when it becomes the model for something utterly different than it, uh, even when he is, in a sense, used as the foil uh, for other things of their own value. So this is a sympathetic version of it. Uh, This is Richard Tuttle, uh, and I unfortunately couldn't find the the right uh, uh, slide for the... the, um, Uh, Kelly piece in this case, but there are things that you will remember from from memory that rhyme with this perfectly. So this is what happens when you remove the stretcher and when painting qua painting becomes something else because you're basically dealing with hemmed fabric. Um, This is a reminder that no idea happens in isolation, that uh, Ellsworth's enormously important contribution to the shaped canvas is not without parallel. And the parallel in this case is Lucio Fontana in Italy. And again, it wasn't a good thing to be a non-American artist in New York in the 50s and 60s because although some of them appeared and were shown, uh, Bury and others, uh, Dubuffet and others, uh, they were always seen at a discount. It was always Dubuffet is good but not as good as Pollock or something like that. But in any case, Fontana is one of those artists who everybody now sees with fresh eyes because for so long he, in fact, was kept at arm's distance uh, by people who were hung up on the mainstream. But he also does something that in his shaped canvas uh, is very different from what Kelly does, which is he perforates it, he cuts into it. And by the way, this is a marvelous instance of where slides lie. They all lie, but they really lie here because the big painting on the far side you can scale to the baseboard. This particular painting is about that high. Um, So that when we're dealing with vocabularies of similarity, it's the differences that make all the difference. Or this. Again, we have on the far side a work of Ellsworth Kelly. On the near side, we have a work uh, by the young artist Tom Friedman, something that I show in the Projects Gallery at the Museum of Modern Art, a marvelous uh, rectilinear abstraction made of Ipana toothpaste. Uh, And you could smell it for blocks. Now, again, I said I like easy pleasures. Uh, there's something uh, a little disconcerting about a toothpaste pleasure because it's the pleasure you wake up in the morning, but it, it cloys very quickly. And so the Duchampian, um, you know, Picabian aggression in this painting is it's too much of a nice thing in every possible way. And, of course, being toothpaste, it never really dries either, so if you rub your shoulder against it, it, you know, it comes off. Anyway, So, again, this is just a place games. or this, two Kellys. Mike and Ellsworth. Um, how, How could one Mike how could one like Mike Kelly and Ellsworth Kelly? This was one of the first people I thought about as antitheses that I find interesting that other people find difficult. Now the reality is that the market tends to validate these things after a while, right? When two strong categories of taste meet in the auction room or in the gallery, the one that was absolutely anathema becomes tolerable simply because it is equally expensive. Um, uh, And that is the way things find themselves into living rooms and into museums, as I will shortly show you. Now, I am not a uh, Friedman uh, type guy. I do not believe in the virtues of the market, and I am not saying this in irony uh, because he has just recently died, although he was a neighbor of ours in Chicago when my sister and I were growing up. Uh, But in any case, um, the market does have some functions. It puts into play in ways that other structures might forbid. It puts into play opposites that at least allows you, or at least in fact forces you, to entertain them in your mind at the same time. So here we have the two Kellys. Uh, and you can see, in fact, that if you want to measure it by one of my standards, which is wall power, uh, that they both have it. That the Kelly holds its own, That is the Kelly left, <coughs> holds its own with the Kelly Wright, even though it violates every tenant of the Kelly Wright. And the Kelly Wright holds its own with the Kelly Left. It does not go away because this Kelly just showed up. Um, Again, I have probably a stronger affinity in some ways uh, with Ellsworth Kelly in terms of my pleasure and probably a stronger affinity in terms of my nature with Mike. Um, So this is a debate within me that I find interesting to see played out by two different artists, both of whom who do their work marvelously well. This is what I wanted to show you in terms of the business of how the market operates and how the museum operates. Uh, Here again, we're dealing with works of art rather than pictures of works of art. Both of these are photographs by uh, the American artist Louise Lawler. On the far side is the Emily and Burton Tremaine Collection at Home. Uh, and you can see this is one of my very favorite slides, and if you've had a lecture from me before, you may have seen it before, because in cases where something in the order of what I'm going to talk about comes up, it seems to be the appropriate one. But here you have a glorious Tondo painting by Robert Dolanay in the back, from I don't know the exact date, but I would imagine about 1967, something like that. Uh, you have a Roy Lichtenstein pop art uh, lamp on the table, and you have Stevie Wonder on the box. This is uh, all of contemporary culture, and it is in its domestic form. And it is interesting that people who have the means are quite comfortable having disparateness around them in this manner. But they sometimes then venture out into other circumstances where if challenged on an exhibitions committee, a uh, trustee committee for collections, uh, in a lecture situation, they may actually uh, take positions harder than the ones represented by what they live with. Uh, I would all encourage you to take heart from the fact that Emily and Burton Tremaine uh, were quite comfortable living with disparateness. Uh, I am jealous of them. I wish I could too. Uh, but except for that, I think it is a very good example of how it is the learning process of collecting where you acquire things without trading away the things you had previously acquired that develops a complex consciousness of art and a complex way of relating to it. And only we could sit in an armchair, as Matisse imagined, and just look at the picture at the end of a busy day knowing, of course, that unlike Matisse's model, some of those pictures may not be entirely comforting. On the near side, of course, is the Tremaine collection in a museum. And museums are, as I think uh, Bill Lieberman said very often, collections of collectors, or at least collections of the collections that collectors made. A good museum is more than that, but almost no museum is not that in some measure. And the disparateness of these collections mean therefore you have the individual contradictions of the primary collector mixed with the individual contradictions of the next collector and the next collector and the next collector, all of them orchestrated by the contradictions of the curators who must hang them. Uh, And what it does is it creates a wonderful sort of uh, visually cacophonous dialogue of multiple personalities. If we know anything about postmodernism is that we are not unified beings. Postmodernism has given license for us to talk to ourselves in tongues, so to speak. Uh, And works of art give us the occasion to do that. In any case, these are uh, more or less uh, what I wanted to talk about in that regard. Um, Here now is the second example, but I'll stop that, uh, in relation to the museum traditions, the person who did this absolutely the best was Alfred Barr. Uh, And, in, in many cases, the idea of the modern as this oppressive institution devoted to a streamlined, exclusive version of art history is a myth based on its second great epic, and it was a great epic, when Bill Rubin, who was a Greenbergian, streamlined that collection and put large parts of it in the closet. But Barr's version of modern art was all the many things that he thought were of interest in the present tense. And I'll come back to it in a a minute. But Barr's version of modern art is much closer to the Tremaine collection than it is to anything that one finds in textbooks of modern art, which are based on this model of a logical progression from one thing to the next, a supersession of one idea by another. It is rather that because ideas do not supersede each other, because they phase in and phase out and come up again when repressed, that our history becomes so interesting. Now, if I sing Barr's praises and those of some collectors of this type, I will sing in particular uh, that of one critic and artist, Donald Judd. Um, Donald Judd is associated with the most severe kind of American minimalist art. And it is also thought that that kind of art was, in the ideologically driven kind of art making, absolutely exclusive of other kinds of art, that only the purity of one form, the cube for example, uh, could be dealt with and everything else was an absolutely impossible to tolerate impurity. But the great thing about Judd was that he wasn't that way at all, in fact. He had, uh, in art historical terms, a roving eye. Uh, In art historical terms, uh, I say because he was, in fact, partially trained as an art history. He was a student of Meyer Shapiro's. He had been a philosophy student prior to that uh, at Columbia, and he had a critical and expansive mind. Now, if his eye was roving, it didn't mean it was any less discriminating. It saw a great deal and judged it very, very severely. A couple of the artists I'm going to show uh, in this uh, slide review are artists that he panned thoroughly. where I disagree with him on his pant. But what I want to point out to is something else, that the artist who for many people would be made for the white cube and made for a very streamlined version of art history was also among the first people to spot and the most generous in criticizing artists that for many years were pushed out of the mainstream and are only now coming back, for example, to the left, Yayoi Kusama. Uh, that every museum is now pursuing, who is now having exhibitions in her late 70s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that are making waves. An artist who comes from a different culture, who works in an idiom uh, which has many attributes in common with Louise Bourgeois, and is therefore disturbing to people for somewhat the same reasons. Mm In any case, Judd was the first person to write seriously about Kusama, and just to sort of talk about the hidden layers of the mainstream, Frank Stella was one of the first people to buy her. Um, So out of the collections of Judd and Stella now come some of the best Kusamas we can find. These two are artists that Donald Judd admired. H.C. Westerman on the far side, whose exhibition was here, and who was long thought of as a mere regional talent of interest. Uh, who Judd thought and said was one of the best artists we have anywhere today, at the time of writing the essay. Or on the near side, Lee Bontekou, who again was an artist uh, of interest to people for a while, a a New York school artist, in fact. This is a case of somebody who was right in the right place, but doing the wrong thing. Uh, So uh, she had her moment, if you will, in the hierarchy, uh, in Hugo Mullis' book, uh, New York, New, uh, New, The New Art Scene, New York, uh, she appears along with Chamberlain, Stella, and a host of others. But for a host of reasons, she also then disappeared and was very hard to re- bring back into the fold. And the exhibition practice of um, a number of people has done that finally. Uh, this was the most surprising late entry in Judd's uh, sort of um, pluralistic approach, uh, and that was Ilya Kabakov. Uh, the Russian conceptual artist who was the last person, I believe, invited by Judd himself to come and make a permanent installation in Marfa. And the idea that a Russian conceptual artist who was nothing if not literary, when it was thought that mainstream American art was nothing if not anti-literary, Uh, uh, should be the person that uh, Judd would fasten on to make a full-scale permanent installation equivalent to that of all the other figures of the New York School, Oldenburg, um, uh, um, uh, Flavin, and others that uh, have situations at Marfa. Now, uh, I'm going to change the slide menu a little bit uh, and just put this up for a second. I'm trying to make an argument for pluralism on a simple basis. Uh, That basis is that we are, in fact, made of contradictions, uh, and that if we do not acknowledge that we are made of contradictions, we can't be truthful about just about anything that we have to do with when it comes to art, not to mention other parts of our life. Uh, There is a wonderful totally American version of this, or defense of this, offered by S. Fitzgerald, where he says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still Uh, and still be able to uh, retain the ability to function. Um, Now, we tend to read theory these days and theory talks about difference but enforces sameness by its logic, by its rhetoric, by its way of making arguments. In literature, the doors are much more loosely ajar. And it's interesting that there are writers like Fitzgerald to whom one can go back to find out something interesting about difference, difference with ourselves, uh, that does not fall into the rhetorical vocabulary of postmodernist thinking, but allows for exactly the kind of internal pluralism that postmodernism at least should partially be about. Pluralism is not relativism. Pluralism does not mean that everything is equal to everything else. It means that everything has a value the values may indeed be very unequal. Uh, they may be in certain cases also perfectly paired dialectically with things of equal value but contradictory, absolutely contradictory sense. In which case, rather than simply saying, I will have some of this and some of that, you can say I will have large helpings of both, not only for the benefits they contain, but for the tensions that they naturally create. It is often thought that quality will determine how we judge art when we come to the choices of this nature. But of course, quality is not a thing, and I am certainly not a Kantian. Quality is really to say qualities in the plural again. There are different qualities to different kinds of art, and there are different levels of complexity and achievement in every one of them. It makes no sense to compare the quality of one thing to the quality of something that has a whole different sense of of what it is and why it is. One can only compare their degree of realization of those properties and possibilities inherent in them. And therefore, if you use the quality of Jackson Pollock to belie the quality of, I don't know who, uh, a contemporary painter, Uh, of of his generation, uh, you are taking a great big risk. If you use, for example, the quality of Ellsworth Kelly to belie the quality of Lucha Fontana, you're missing the boat. If you can see the quality in both and understand the difficulties both had, the things both achieved, and the things they did not, one is in much surer territory. In this case, therefore, I would say connoisseurship, another value uh, that is supposed to sort of settle matters, connoisseurship has to be carefully, delicately addressed. You cannot be a connoisseur in a dozen things. You can only be a connoisseur in those things to which you have sufficient access and for which you have sufficient time and interest to study. Now, that does not mean you cannot be connoisseur in disparate things, however. You can be an aficionado of Indian Rajput and Deccan and other kinds of painting and be very engaged in postmodern constructivist uh, work or something like that. You You can bridge vast territories, but you can't be an expert in all of them in between and all of the ones that go laterally. There's also another little problem which has to do with good taste in relation to bad taste. As I say, I'm no great believer in taste, and I'm no Kantian. Uh, but taste as a, uh, a way of saying that one assesses, one ways uh, through a sort of acquired familiarity and an ability to make distinctions and uh, to discriminate among examples, uh, then good taste does not mean there is good taste and bad taste and that the objects associated with it are immediately identifiable in, in the, uh, sort of a priori, but rather that there are people who have better abilities and people who have less good abilities relative to the object of study. And of course, one of the great rebellions in modern art from its very beginnings, with uh, Picabia being the example, but in the 1970s and 60s, uh, in the revolt against the American idea of the mainstream, it was pop and funk. Uh, The idea of uh, good taste and bad taste meant how do you have good taste in bad taste? And in the 1970s, this was pressed a little farther by the idea of bad painting, which went aggressively in the wrong way in relation to painting values that were thought to be mainstream. Gustin, of course, is emblematic of this. Gustin was the person who had the best taste among the abstract expressionists, so much the best taste that many people thought of him as a lightweight painter, consequently, who then began to develop his cartoon figures and was judged to have bad taste uh, but the people who didn't like him, he didn't even give credit for bad taste, they made him the person who had bad taste within bad taste, uh, Hilton Kramer famously calling him a, a, stum- a, a Mandarin pretending to be a stumble bump. Uh But that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, There is an artist, Neil Jenny, whose work I showed you at the very beginning, the two planes, the Soviet plane and the American plane, them and us, in confrontation. Uh, And I did an interview with him him some years ago, and he sort of broke it down in a much better way. He said, there is good painting and good drawing. There's bad painting and good drawing. There's good painting and bad drawing. And there's bad drawing and bad painting. Uh, His work, Jenny's work, would be a case of bad painting, figure painting, smearing, with very good drawing. Uh, there is, perhaps with Kelly, a case of bad painting and bad drawing. That is to say, both sides are awkward, but both sides are also eloquent in their awkwardness, and that is the whole point. And therefore, first we have to assume that there is not a dichotomy good and bad in taste, that there is capacity and incapacity in relation to both things. There is the ability to notice in both things. And then with any given artifact, there are multiple qualities to which that capacity can be applied. And you have to be a good judge of what the balances are and how artistically those balances have been chosen and either balanced or pitted against one another to create an object which after all, if you hate it that much, got your attention and if you hate it that much, flew under the radar of your taste and somehow tapped into one of your internal contradictions. Kelly and Coons are good examples of people who have good taste and bad taste. Uh, and they are people who show the ways in which this is not just a sort of fly-by-night uh, Luddite or uh, you know, Lumpen movement in art, but a continuation of the complex dialectics of modernism, which are founded on the principle that art shall reveal its own nature by exploring its own means. And what they have done is exploring it coming in backwards. They are, well, I won't go into the anatomical reference, but anyway. Um, Another, uh, if you will, uh, person one can look to in this context is Bertolt Brecht, uh, who uh, applied the principle of crude thinking to situations, the ways in which the best way to break up a deadlock of thought is to think crudely about it rather than more exquisitely. Or Martin Kippenberger, the late but until recently contemporary German artist who reminded us that you can't be dumb to do dumb. Now, There are, in this context, all kinds of tensions, and I'm going to shift to another example uh, and show you how, in working with artists, one sometimes comes up against the tension between two artists who have differing or divergent opinions of each other uh, and how, as a curator, one finds oneself in the middle. Uh, Here you have two paintings made in roughly the same year, 64-65. One is Uncle Rudy uh, by uh, Gerhard Richter. Uh, maybe that's 66 actually, Uh, and on the far side a painting uh, heavily influenced by uh, Mark Rothko, although about as big as that, uh, by Robert Ryman. Two artists coming from entirely different backgrounds, Uh, Gerhard Richter coming from East Germany, uh, having lived through the Nazi era, uh, having been a socialist realist uh, painter, and a successful one by the way, Uh, and uh, Bob Ryman, who started out as a jazz musician, never took any art lessons, Gerhard took a lot, Uh, started out as a jazz musician and learned painting by doing on the side. He also worked as a museum of modern art guard, which is where he fell in love with Rothko, simply by watching the installation of a Rothko show. Now, these two artists are, both of them, very important to me, and both artists with whom I have worked a great deal and who I know very well. Um, But there's a very interesting relation between the two of them, and as a curator, one found oneself, or I found myself, between them. Uh, which is to say that they both showed extensively in Germany in the early 1960s. Ryman was one of that group of artists, of which Richard Tuttle, Carl uh, Andre, and others were examples, who had actually better reception in Europe in their early phases of their career than they had in their own country. And one of the projects of museum people in recent years is in a sense to recover the missing part of American art history, which is to say all of those artists who should have been in the mainstream but weren't uh, who are now being finally caught up with by the American public and also who are finally being caught up with American art history since that mainstream has to be entirely rewritten if one is to deal with it at all by incorporating them fully. Thus, Frank Stella is a remarkable painter, but he's not the only kid on the block, and it's not just Ellsworth Kelly who is there with him. But in any case, these are two artists who showed in the same context, who are of roughly the same age. In fact, I think they're identical age. And the problem is something like this. Um, Gerhard Richter loves Ryman's work, has always loved Ryman's work, Um, partly because Ryman does the thing that he, Gerhard Richter, cannot do. Gerhard Richter is a uh, deeply skeptical man, uh, a seriously skeptical man, who does not feel that it is in him or perhaps in the times to make transcendent paintings, who does not feel that it is him or in the times to deal in simple terms with the material nature of painting. Who is anti positivist, not that Ryman is a positivist, but who is in all kinds of ways a philosophical painter, in the ways that Ryman is a, a, a painter with philosophical weight but not philosophical intention, if you want to put it that way. In any case, uh, Richter has always admired Ryman. Ryman has never known until recently what to do with Richter. <laughs> he could not understand the diversity of styles. He could not understand whether, indeed, he was sincere about his work. And for Bob, that is a value. Um, and altogether, he felt uncomfortable, even though he understood his force. Uh, it was, I'll show you these. Two. This is, this, again, these are contemporary paintings, as are these. Two paintings from 1988, one from the Bader meinhof series, October 1977, 18 1977, which I bought for the modern. And on the far side, a painting, which I wish I could have bought for the modern, uh, of Bob Ryman's, also from 1988. Uh, at the Richter exhibition, to which Bob was invited because all artists who have had retrospectives at the Modern come to those events, uh, he walked through the galleries and he was op- his eyes were opened for the first time to what Richter was as a painter. Since Bob's priorities are unpainting, he has said over and over and over again, he said, there has never been a question of what to paint, but only how to paint. And Richter, conversely, has always, in a sense, thought there's always the question of what to paint and by what right one paints it, even though the how can be as many possible ways as you could imagine. And the discovery of Ryman uh, by Ryman of Richter at this exhibition was one of those situations where people who normally could not uh, have come to terms, uh, in effect, did come to terms. And it was after that actually that Bob had a retrospective in Bonn and that Gerhard and I went uh, in at very high speeds in a BMW, as you can only do in Germany, uh, to go see uh, the uh, Ryman show. And it was interesting to walk through the Ryman exhibition and look at it, not with my own eyes, which I've been looking at Ryman since the early 1970s, but with his eyes, and to see how it is that that which was familiar to me was interestingly estranged and then reacquired, if you will, through uh, through Richter's experience. Now, I'm going to just show these are just pairings. Uh, These are cases of pseudomorphism a term which basically says that things that look alike are alike except of course we know that if things look alike they're not alike. Uh, The difference is built into similarity as well as being obvious when things are extremely uh, uh, various uh, and diverse. So here you have Marcel Duchamp's installation for the Surrealism show uh, of I think 19 something 40 about in in New York and on the near side you have uh, Eva Hess's uh, uh, right after. (coughs) Excuse me, hang up. (coughs) No, excuse me, it's right after. Um, Now, I'm just going to go through some slides and just say a few simple things and then I will get in under my hour and you can go wherever you need to go. Although, I'll say I'd be happy to respond to challenges, respond to questions, whatever, later on. Anyway, um, these are some artists I have found that I'm interested in despite the fact that I uh, try uh, in some ways to fend some of them off or have tried to fend some of them off. But I learned something from my own experience of exposure, something that's connected to what I just said, which is if something really irritates you, that it has identified a node in your consciousness. Sorry, that has identified a node in your consciousness. Uh, the things that don't interest me are things that just are blandly okay. They can be expensively okay, they can be brilliantly okay, they can be beautifully okay, but they're just okay. Uh, things that are really not okay or things that are really exceptional in some other ways are the ones that I understand to have identified something that is a potential in me. Uh, It may be a potential I would prefer not to discuss with my family and friends, but it is a potential. Uh, And one should know about these things and explore them, and one of the things about art is that one can. Uh, In this respect, I'd like to say two things. Uh, In terms of the role of a professional in this matter, what does somebody who has espoused what I've espoused here uh, do against the charge that one has a public responsibility to choose the best, not to pollute the culture with dubious things, not to foist off your own little quirky uh, favorites on people who have uh, less time to devote to this and should not be led astray or should not be given trifling things one way or another? Um, There is some truth of this, uh, and there are, indeed, uh, trivial exhibitions made all the time. Uh, there are distracting exhibitions all made all the time. But you can tell the difference between one which you don't like, as I said, liking being not a very interesting term, one which you don't like, which is made sincerely or insincerely, <coughs> in order to say this exists. And if you, if you will give it the time, you will get something back from it. And in relation to this, I would simply like to quote a model uh, given to me by Rona Rube, who was Alfred Barr's last major assistant before his full uh, departure from the museum, and who was for many years thereafter uh, the archivist of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, she recalled talking to Barr at one point where he said he thought the role of the museum director, or museum curator, excuse me, was to operate like the big city editor, actually like the editor of a big city paper, that the decisions that the editor makes is what to print, and also in what form it appears. Does it appear as news, or does it appear a reportage, or does it appear with editorial content? Does it appear with deep analysis, or does it appear as a kind of notification that such and such is, is there? The idea that what museums should do is that they should bring the general public into the level of information that people who are specialists have, which is what reporters do do, Uh, that it should open up a public dialogue and become a forum for ideas rather than an exponent of a theory of what those ideas should end up uh, being or what things, where culture should end up going, is a very different model than the model of the mainstream. Which is again why I think the bar model of the museum director and museum curator is infinitely preferable to all those versions of the director and curator that we inherited from uh, Clement Greenberg. And the fact that people have changed their ideas and no longer support color field painting, but believe the text and grainy photographs are truth above all else, uh, makes no significant difference. The idea of an open, pluralistic, eclectic, what have you, view of the world, which is at the same time dialectical and not relativistic, is what I am hoping to propound or to uh, hold forth. And I will use again Judge as an example of an artist who did this. Or in a simple other variation of this is, let me give you some others. Here are two people who question painting all in making it, Daniel Buren on the far side, and on the near side, um, uh, uh, Gerhard Richter's very close, Flan, Brinkley Palermo. Uh, the point is that neither of these are really paintings. One of them is awning material, standard awning material, and the one on the near side is the so-called Stoffbilder, which is basically a painting made out of uh, yard goods. Um, these have all the attributes of what we would think of as a certain kind of hardcore modernist painting. Uh, but in fact, they are Duchampian gestures but also they're not just Duchampian gestures because they are also really paintings. And the idea that when Duchamp trumps one thing, the other thing rolls up and goes away, is not true. What happens is that every Duchampian gesture has also bred its own genre of the thing that it was in part intended to satirize. And Buren and Blinky Palermo and others are examples of this. Incidentally, here again, Kelly comes up as a very, very prescient artist because he made in about 1950 also a painting out of pure stretched fabrics with no painting whatsoever. these two artists, uh, last year's uh, fall season at MoMA and this year's fall season at MoMA. Artists who like and respect each other very much, but could not be further apart from each other in some dimensions, quite literally, in three dimensions, uh, but at the same time also feed off the same traditions of Cubism and Surrealism in order to create an extension of the modernist tradition, but in particular the case of Elizabeth Murray, an extension which could not in any way be foreseen by the theories of the mainstream. Uh, for a host of reasons I won't go into here. Or just for, again, pseudomorphism for fun, Joan Mitchell and Joseph Boyce. Um, I don't think they show up together very often. Um, (laughs) But if you actually look at the way this kind of swelling, uh, flexing, uh, but loosely so, uh, kind of geometry appears, it's interesting to see that they're actually not so far apart. And I, at least, again, I, I do have a secret life as a painter, uh, and I have looked at both of these and wondered, I wonder how I could do that better. Um, two artists dealing with the same subject, and you could throw Richter in on this one as well, uh, Warplanes uh, On the near side, Roy Lichtenstein again, and on the far side, Via Selman's. Uh, Roy Lichtenstein was in the army, uh, but Via Selman's was underneath bombs. Um, these two paintings represent different understandings of the image and therefore different vocabularies. To speak of them together is to tease out those differences rather than to compare them invidiously one to the other for superiority. Or this, I think kind of fun. Uh, the uh, American painter Alex Katz, who has uh, made painting after painting after painting of his very beautiful wife, um, Ada Katz, who is beautiful in part because she is so supremely intelligent in every painting. She's the last uh, thing you would think of in terms of the passive female model. Um, she's everything but and yet he has reinvented the idea of the female muse by using this utterly urbane uh, American uh, figure. Uh, And on the far side you have Jim Nutt, Midwestern painter, who has taken the vocabulary of, among others, uh, John Graham, of uh, Miro, and others, and to make another version of American womanhood. Now, I'm not going to get into the gender politics of this right now. Somebody may want to with me later. But suffice it to say that both of these artists are conservative artists in terms of what they do. Both of them make fresh and thought-provoking paintings. Or this, just in terms of legs and detachment, Susan Rothenberg on the far side and Bob Gober on the near side. Um, I have said this also before, but I'll risk saying it again. Uh, The gober is often uh, underestimated, if you will, in terms of how provocative it is. It is, of course, a gesture in space, an absurd gesture in space. Uh, If anybody knows the famous Beauty and the Beast film of Cocteau, there are those wonderful sconces with uh, arms that hold uh, candelabras, and when Beauty and the Beast walk down the hall, these beautiful arms move, okay? So in one way, this is a Cocteauian or surrealist gesture. The way in which it is not is, as most people don't notice until they're right on top of it, you're on the inside seam of this man's pants. (laughs) Other contradictions. Uh, Contradictions in relation to craft. Uh, It was long thought that crudeness was authenticness. That craft was a sign of a kind of inauthentic preoccupation with effect. Of mere uh, decorative beauty. Of mere uh, luxury, if you will, of materials. Uh, But here you have two artists for whom the idea of exceedingly high levels of craft are essential and the intention behind it almost diametrically opposed. Uh, Martin Purrier on the near side and Jeff Koons on the far side. Martin Purrier who does this himself and Jeff Koons who farms it out. Uh, To think about not the image per se, but this relation to craft and to the idea of what it means to truly make something in relation to a whole tradition of modern art for which fabrication or uh, sort of improvised methods of making were the preferred uh, mode, uh, both of these artists challenge it. Both of them also, in a sense, are advocating a conservative, quote-unquote, position in relation to the avant-garde, now dated avant-garde, idea of the opposite. But they are thought-provoking to me, at any rate, because they do. This is one of my, uh, again, favorite kinds of things. Uh, this is another case of an olfactory delight. Uh, these are two simple spheres, ideal pure forms. Uh, the one on the far side is made out of I don't know how many sticks of bubblegum, gum, uh, chewed by Tom Friedman, and then licked so that you can stick it to the wall. Um, it also smells all over the gallery, just the way his toothpaste piece the other one are two dumb balls. We go back to you know, Kippenberger's You can't be dumb to do dumb. Uh, two dumb balls of David Ireland, the West Coast artist, uh, who uh, simply would take a lump of cement and toss it back and forth between his hands until it f- took the form of a perfect sphere. This is a platonic shape, basically. It is a Zen exercise. It is an absolutely beautiful form, uh, but it, in a sense, means no- nothing other than its genesis, nothing other than the way it is to have that thing in your hand. Whereas the uh, Friedman one is obviously satirical and other dimensions. Uh, just the, in terms of the uh, degradation of materials, or the idea of the A form, which is very po- popular these days on the far side, a photograph, which after all also is a work of art by Hans Namuth of Jackson Pollock scattering paint, and the near side, Mike Kelly uh, doing a photograph shoot of the regression to childhood playing with one's feces. Uh, This is a satire on the part of Kelly of the idea of creative regression. What people don't understand with Kelly is that he too actually has a very critical attitude towards the myth of the unfettered artist. He's made works of art which are devoted to the idea that you explode the proposition that artists are like criminals. And that in a sense makes them the outlaw within the society and marvelous and romantic. Uh, he did this by creating a long corridor of faces with thinkers from Nietzsche to uh, the classics and on up and down uh, saying things that equate the artist with the criminal. And at the end, he had a painting, dependent on the town, of a local serial killer incarcerated who had taken up Sunday painting to point out the ways in which artists are not criminals and criminals, in fact, are not artists. Therefore, when you look at the offense of this, the offense of this, in fact, is a critical activity addressed to the myth that goes with the idea that what Jackson Pollock was doing was finding his primal state. This is, again, two works of art, just opposites uh, attract, but this time the opposites attract by similarity. One is really de Kooning, and one is really, really not de Kooning, but really Sherry Levine. Um, They're both actually pretty good drawings. Um, or this, another Mike Kelly, I, scatological things seem to have me this evening, uh, but this is a disorganized body. And on the near side, Nancy Rubens, uh, who has made this marvelous uh, sort of Baroque uh, thing out of mattresses and expensive layer cakes. Or these, uh, Alicia Scabbage on the far side and um, Kara Walker on the near side. Uh, artists who indulge in the grotesque. Now, a lot of what I've showed you is the grotesque, and I'm not going to go back in the next minute or two to my theories of the grotesque, but simply to say that the grotesque is where contradiction is the engine for art making, and that is why, as Thomas Mann said, it is peculiarly modern. This is uh, a version of uh, uh, Boyce's felt suit, and this is Morzio Cantalan having his fun with Boyce. And two other artists on the near side, uh, uh, Tom Friedman on the far side, Charlie Ray, playing with the same type of situation. Here, Tom Naskowski, an abstract painter, and here, Jim Nutt, uh, a realistic painter, or not a realistic painter, but an image painter, uh, dealing in the same vocabulary but doing utterly different things with it. Or here, uh, t- uh, this is, by the way, a lampoon. You'll see it says Yale on his T-shirt there. Uh, this is the lampoon of mainstream painting by Peter Saul. And on the far side, Jasper Johns, who has become a mainstream painter, quoting Picasso, who is the source of the mainstream, in something that's every bit as funky as the soul. And this is the blank, and I will just say the last two remarks, or three. Um, I've tried with examples and with arguments to basically advocate the notion that one should in fact look out, seek out art that is antithetical or seems to be antithetical, incommensurable, or seems to be so. Uh, one should remember in the matters of taste that as much as taste matters, appetite matters. I am not interested in the taste of people who have a no appetite. People who have appetites tend to eat things that are good for them and bad for them. Uh, they tend to eat more than they actually need, but they also tend to learn from th- something from the experience. That in the world that we're dealing with, people with fastidious taste and small appetites tend to move very fast because they can give out certainties. But sooner or later, people with uncertain taste but big appetites will find their advice unsatisfying. Um, I will simply uh, argue that you will cut your losses and save time if you listen to people who have appetites similar to your own, and I'm thinking of it in magnitude, not necessarily uh, particular things, uh, and tastes dissimilar to your own. Um, I will also then pick one last example. Uh, the last example is to cite uh, scripture from my point of view, uh, which is to cite Walt Whitman. Now, a lot of theoretical discourse, as I say, is now borrowed from German uh, and French philosophical traditions, all of them very interesting, borrowed from philosophy and the social sciences, linguistics, etc, etc. But literature, and indeed American literature, has a lot to be learned from. And if you go back to the song of myself, of Whitman, you will find much that is very helpful in pluralistic times, much that is very helpful in divisive times. After all, he was writing on or around the American Civil War. He was writing at a time when many people thought civilization couldn't sink any lower than New York City, uh, and so on down the line. He was also, by the way, a Brooklynite. And one of the lead lines in the song of myself is, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. It seems to me that one should think Whitmanesque-like thoughts and operate on Whitmanesque principles, and one will find that the world is infinitely richer and entirely tolerable. Thank you.